Hello there. It's an off week, so why are you hearing my voice right now? Well, the single biggest complaint that we've had about this series is that people don't like our every other week release schedule. As I've said before, Ruth and I both have full-time jobs, and we're doing the best we can to keep up with it. Although, honestly, the nature of this series and how people have been reaching out to us as a result, I don't know that we'd be releasing any faster even if we were working on it full-time. Anyway, to appease the mob, we're going to start releasing some bonus content on the week's in-between episodes. So far for this series, I've recorded over 40 hours of interviews. A lot of that content is unusable for one reason or another, but at a certain point, there's only so much of the good content that we can fit into what we're trying to do with this series. And as a result, there's some gems that have been left on the cutting room floor. So today we start with some of the Jerem Bars interview that doesn't have a home otherwise. You'll hear his backstory, his time at Labrie in Switzerland, some additional thoughts he had about Elizabeth, and his history with Grace and Peace Fellowship, the church he helped found in St. Louis around 1970. Now, these bonus episodes won't be like normal. There's not a lot of production value. You're basically just going to hear people talking straight through. But hopefully you still find the content interesting and enough to hold you over in between episodes. Also, I don't know how long this extra content is going to last. There's only so much for me to work with in terms of usable pieces that didn't have a home in an actual episode. So at some point, if you wake up on a Tuesday and there's nothing new from us, you're just going to have to wait for the next episode. And with that, I bring you Jerem Bars. What have you been doing with all your time since you're retired? Well, it hasn't been that long, you know. It was just the end of January, end of December, and then I had grading in January. So I've been doing a bit of yard work, and uh, I have lots of flowers out there I grow for my wife. And uh, we've been reading aloud together, and we love to cook together. And uh, my primary purpose in retiring was simply to be with her. So that's what we've been doing. And then we have two sons here with their families, so several grandsons. So we get together with both of them almost every week. So that's, that's special. Yeah. And I'm taking six months before I think about whether I will write some more. So we'll see. And I've been bringing all my books home and giving them all away, most of them away, and uh, bringing my files home. So I, I just almost completed that last week, and then I've got to refile them here at home. That's going to take quite a while, because they go back all the way to 1971, when I graduated from Covenant and immediately started preaching regularly. So I've been preparing lectures and sermons every week of my life since 1971. So it's very different. I, I have a lot of paper because everything was by hand until I came to Covenant when they gave me a computer. So I got myself a typing tutor and taught myself to type. But uh, So I still got all those handwritten sermons and lectures back from the 70s, 80s, etc. And I carried on writing after I first moved here. In I started teaching here in January 89. So while even though I was learning to type, I still was writing almost everything out by hand at that point for several years. Okay, so why don't we start with, can you just give us a little Jerem intro? Who are you? Where are you from? how you got connected with Covenant, just sort of a little elevator pitch bio for you. 
Yeah. Um, Jerem Bars, I no middle name. I grew up in Hampshire in the south of England. Moved, moved there when I was four with my parents. My home wasn't a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a passionately committed communist and had been since probably 1918 um, when he were, came out of World War I from the trenches. And after seeing his whole generation basically sacrifice their lives, coming back to England and finding nothing had changed, that was the point at which he, he became a Marxist when he was a very young man because he'd falsified his age to join up in the war, which was easier to do at that point. He was only 16 when he went off to the trenches in France and was very, very severely injured. So he he didn't marry my mother until during World War II. So she was much younger. He was 45, she was 19. But they had probably the best marriage I've ever seen, uh, just a wonderful marriage, and they were great parents. So he's been my model my whole life, basically, to be as a husband and a father. But they did not raise me as a, as a believing Christian. Though, interestingly, they read the Bible to us every night, prayed with me every night, told me when I was 10, took me to church, told me when I was 10 that they didn't believe it themselves, but they wanted me to make up my own mind. It was a very interesting approach to such things. But, yeah, I have such happy memories of my childhood that was very, very impoverished. But when I, I went to, we, went, we lived out in the country, I worked as a gardener on a local estate as a child from when I was 10, basically, every vacation, Christmas, Easter, summer, and helped support the family because they were just very poor. So uh, really, really poor. Because at that point, people who did the kind of work he did as a gardener were basically treated like serfs, not a living wage at all. But uh, it was a very happy home in which to grow up. There was no school near enough to go to every day. When I passed a, an exam at the age of 10, which determined whether you went to an academic school or a kind of more regular school in the British system. And when I passed that, I had to go to boarding school, 35 miles from home. We had no car, so not a lot. You know, I used to cycle everywhere, catch the train and the bus. But... Um, when I finished high school at the age of 17, I had a year between high school and starting university. And that gave me a lot of time to think about what's life all about. And I came to the conclusion that it was absurd and there weren't any answers. And I went off to university to begin just before I turned uh, 19, 18, I suppose. And uh, Immediately, I hoped my professors would answer my questions. I was studying English literature about the meaning of life, but uh, they weren't prepared to, to get into those kinds of issues. And so after a couple of months, I became basically, I, I suppose today one would say an existentialist. I didn't use that term myself. I just thought life was absurd and, and became ser seriously suicidal and went out one day to, to kill myself. Uh, to throw myself over a, a cliff outside of Manchester, 
where I was at university. I took a bus out there and had no intention of coming back. That road led to my parents and uh, for somebody to find when I didn't return. But when I got out there, standing on this cliff in January, bitterly cold, it's like 33 degrees, I just was overwhelmed by the beauty of the setting. In fact, it's a famous beauty spot. I didn't know that at the time. When I went out there, I just knew there was a cliff there. It looks right across northwest England into Wales from this, uh, from this hilltop with the pre precipice below it. And I thought I, I stood there on the edge and thought, I can't take this final step. I've, I've got to keep searching. There has to be a reason why the world is so beautiful, even in the middle of winter. And just a couple of weeks after I got back, I met my first really serious Christian who's a Canadian who I'm still very close to today and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful human being. And he used to, I had a lot of meals in his apartment. He was a PhD student doing philosophy, but uh, he used to have a discussion group in his apartment on Saturday nights. And sometimes they'd play some music, sometimes listen to a lecture, Sometimes he'd read something and there'd be a discussion and myself and a pile of other uh, unbelieving young men were there. And uh, one evening, he had no idea where I was coming from because I hadn't told him yet, but uh, he read the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I just was overwhelmed by it because up till that moment, even though I'd gone to church and Sunday school as a child um, and had to every Sunday at boarding school, I'd never really been in a church where anybody was really preaching a biblical gospel. So my view of the Bible was it was simply a pile of made-up stories with no real meaning. And so to hear this account from Ecclesiastes of exactly what I believed uh, about reality just was astonishing. And then over the next year or so, Mike answered all my questions, you know, very basic questions about God, about human beings, who we are, why, why there's such problems, the problem of evil and suffering, all sorts of other issues. And, uh, and eventually I became a Christian in his apartment, kneeling on the kitchen floor one Tuesday evening in November 66, when I was just, just after I turned 21. And then I graduated the next summer. And Mike, this fellow, had been profoundly influenced by Francis Schaeffer and the work of Labrie. And so he and he used to play lectures by Schaeffer on these Saturday evening discussions. And but I met Schaeffer when he first came to the first time I met him, he came to to speak to students at Manchester University, where I was an undergraduate and gave one of his talks on history of ideas, and it was more valuable than anything I'd heard in any of my lectures at university, because it made sense of what I'd been studying. It was kind of like a light over the whole landscape of my studies. So, you know, I graduated, my whole life turned around in those few months, and I had no idea what I was going to do with my future. And uh, Mike said, well, why don't you head over to Labrie? So I hitchhiked over to Labrie the day after graduation in Switzerland and got there and remarkably rapidly with a long lift. The first main lift I got that Thursday morning, I started off 
took me all the way from the south of England almost to Basel in Switzerland. It was a, a remarkable thing because the guy who stopped on this little side road to pick me up turned out to be a Christian. And though in England, less than 5% of the population are, are believers. And he was a student at Cambridge University and he'd just heard Schaefer speaking there two weeks before. So he knew about the He was going to Vienna, but he took me almost to Basel. And so we crossed the channel together and spent a night together in Belgium. And then on the evening of the second day, he dropped me off outside Basel on the Friday evening. And then on Saturday morning, I got up to Libri in Switzerland. And I went, originally went for two weeks and ended up staying there for a year, becoming a, a worker there, a staff member there. I was either Schaefer's gardener and cook, because I love to cook. And she was writing the Libri story, her first book. And Schaefer was working on the manuscripts of his first couple of books, Escape from Reason and the God Who Was There. And my wife, I met her there. She's from California, Vicky. And uh, she had just arrived there that summer too. She'd been working in Paris for the Billy Graham organization the year before. And then came to be Schaefer's secretary. But she was typing up the manuscripts of his first two books. And she and I fell in love that fall and got married that Christmas. Um, just a few weeks after we met. Then Schaefer, you know, he was an adjunct member of faculty at Covenant Seminary and was very close friends with faculty here at that point. And uh, so he encouraged me to come to Covenant. So after that year working in Brie, I came to be a student at Covenant Seminary in, in September 68. We'd got married in December 67. And... Uh, so I came here, graduated from here in 71, and we went back to work at the new branch of Brie in England, which started in the spring of 1971. So we went as some of the first um, staff members there and also planted a church there. So we were there for the seminary from when I graduated right up until we moved here in November 88, and I started teaching here in January 89. But uh, the seminary kept writing to me and saying, when are you coming back? So uh, eventually I came. So that, that's my history. And in between, we had three sons, and we now have three daughters-in-law and 10 grandchildren. And much to our astonishment, because our sons have these, we have a very multicultural family, uh, much to our astonishment, uh, two of them live here in St. Louis, you know, very close to us. And the other one, the youngest one, is living in England. But uh, we're very close to all three of them and to our grandchildren. So that's that's my history. And I grad and I retired at Christmas in the end of last year at the age of 77. So after 34 years teaching here. So I'm sorry, that's too long a history of my no, that was great. That we'll call that the extended cut. Yeah, I'm sorry about um, that. No, 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 that's you fine. You can cut that out. <laughs> okay, now let's do the abbreviated. Can you give me the history of Jerem Bars from birth until covenant in about thirty seconds? Yeah. Okay. I grew up in the south of England in a wonderful family. I uh, was converted at the age of twenty-one when I was at Manchester University. Went to Labrie in Switzerland right after graduation. Met my wife, Vicky there, who's from Central California, grew up on a farm there, and uh, we got married. 
few weeks after we met, and Schaefer encouraged me to come here to study at Covenant, which I did, then went back to work in Labrie, and then returned to teach at Covenant. Started in January 89, up until the end of December this past year. Okay, but let's go back, Jerem. People aren't going to know what Labrie is or who Francis Schaefer was. So could you just briefly describe what is Labrie, who is Francis Schaefer for the un people that don't know? Yeah. Um, Labrie means the shelter. It's a French word. The first branch was in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, up in the Swiss Alps, uh, on the way to Italy, to northern Italy, where it is. Francis Schaefer and his wife were, were Americans. He was a pastor here in the United States, first in Pennsylvania, then here in St. Louis, the pastor of Covenant Church here, which was at that time down in the city rather than out here in West County. And in 1947, he was sent by the Presbyterian Denomination's mission board to Europe to give a report on what was happening to the gospel there. Because of the war, there was a, basically a total breakdown of, of knowledge. There wasn't the internet, etc. So you have to imagine, a, you have just two generations ago, a very different world. And Europe was still in complete chaos. You know, there were military forces everywhere, you know, refugees everywhere. I remember the bombing still from when I was eight, ten years old. Southampton was just like a pancake still, just bombed everywhere um, from World War II. And, uh, but when he went, of course, it was just terrible, and he had to get special military permission to go into all sorts of places. He traveled all over Europe, up as far north as Scandinavia and over into Britain and uh, into Spain and Italy and as far east as Czechoslovakia. It was just before the Russians came and closed down Czechoslovakia when he was there in 47. So he went to many, many countries and wrote these fascinating letters back about the state of, of the Christian faith. And he had very few contacts. He had to kind of make them when he got there. And every spare minute he had after meeting Christians all over the place, he spent his time looking at you know, Florence and Rome and all the extraordinary buildings and artwork and museums and churches and everything else. It was a kind of cultural baptism for him uh, in all sorts of ways. So he was over there for three months and then came back home to his wife here in St. Louis, to Edith and his family. And the mission board decided that they wanted to send somebody back to Europe to strengthen the things that remain. Um, that was the purpose of, and they sent the Schaefers. Uh, and so they went back to Europe in 1948 uh, as a family, basically with just with a blank slate, with just to go and settle in in Switzerland and then try to start uh, a gospel ministry there. And uh, it's just a remarkable history to to read about it. They uh, first were living in a pension with a group of elderly people in the 80s and 90s, and they just started a worship service on Sunday morning for these elderly people. And, and then they and their kids just started meeting people on the street and inviting them into discussions and 
and so on. And uh, after a few months, they moved up into the mountains to the village of Champéry, which is on the opposite side of the valley from where Labrie eventually was, but up in the Alps. It's a ski resort, just like the area where they later moved to. But they just started a ministry there, just reaching out to the people who lived around them. And that particular part of Switzerland was Roman Catholic, where they were, up in Champéry. But all kinds of people from the community there and from the schools there and tourists there became Christians through their ministry, through discussions and meetings in their home, and they started having worship services regularly. They actually started a church called the International Presbyterian Church for the people becoming Christians. But the turning point came when uh, a drunken ski instructor, atheist, was converted. I, I knew this man well because he became an elder in the church. They, uh, this is years later, of course, I got to know him. But uh, his family was so angry, they appealed to the bishop, and the Roman Catholic bishop had them thrown out of the country, out of the, out of the canton, the Roman Catholic canton, and out of the country. And so they suddenly got this notice in the mail saying they had to be out by March the 1st or whatever it was with all their documents cancelled and uh, they got a friend appealed on their behalf he was a lawyer and uh, they they did decided not to try to do anything influential contacting their congressman or anything but to simply pray that God would sort this out if he wanted them to stay well this friend appealed on their behalf, and the answer was that if they could find a, a community that would accept them in a Protestant canton, uh, they could stay. But they had like just a month or something like that. And it was through a series of miracles, they found a place which at the last minute they discovered they had to buy. Um, this was the day before they had to leave the country. And that last morning there, in the mail, they got this, uh, because they had no money to make a down payment on the house, but they got a check for $10,000 from a, a couple in Nebraska who just said, we, we, the Lord compelled us, you know, my husband just got this from his work, an unexpected bonus, and we had all sorts of things we wanted to do, making a holiday cottage, you know, having a special trip. And we thought, no, we've got to send it to the Schaefer's, that's what God wants us to do. And they used that as the down payment on this house. And so they were able to stay, and they carried on the work of the church there, reaching out to people in the community. But also, people started coming to stay with them, and a couple of years later, they started the work of Labrie. And Labrie means the shelter. They were praying that God would bring people to them who wanted to know him or wanted to know him better. So both unbelievers and Christian believers came to stay with them. Uh, they prayed that God would provide the finances rather than asking for money. So Labrie has always been a faith work, praying for its financial support rather than communicating what its needs are and asking people to give. There is none of that. And praying that God would bring people of his choice and that he'd provide the staff of his choice. And uh, Labrie is still functioning today in half a dozen countries in Switzerland, in England, here in the States, in Canada, in Brazil, in Korea, in the Netherlands, uh, etc., and uh, with these residential branches, which are still functioning the same way. 
and uh, still unbelievers coming and Christians coming to grow. And uh, that's where my wife and I worked uh, for many, many years and are still very much in contact with them. But that's the work of Labrie and that's Francis Nita Schaefer. And they wrote lots of books. She wrote more books than he did. But uh, some you could say would be on a kind of apologetic works on on why Christianity is true and why people should believe. Many of the books are looking at what's happening in the culture. Uh, some of them are biblical studies. Some of the bo uh, books on the Christian life. Edith wrote a book on suffering, which is, I think, the best book on suffering out there called Affliction. And uh, he wrote a, couple, a wonderful book on the Christian life called True Spirituality. And uh, she wrote a book on prayer, an excellent book on prayer. So all sorts of books, books on art and philosophy and many, many other subjects. So that's Francine de Schaefer. That's Labrie. And it's still functioning today with people going and asking their questions and getting answers and coming to faith and and many Christians going, including pastors, to, to study and grow. And also lots of people with very serious personal problems, psychological problems. So we often felt like we were, we were almost like a, a, a psychiatric hospital sometimes, with people in most desperate, desperate need. There weren't nearly as many women at Covenant in 1989 as there are today. So would you say that it was a, you know, well, what's the most charitable way to say it? it? It was a less friendly environment to a woman, especially a woman with strong opinions, either from the students or the faculty. I mean, you said you don't remember any of the faculty having a specific disagreement with her, but do you think that it was a, uh, she was a challenge? She, some other people would have considered her a challenge. I, I don't remember anybody ever saying so among my colleagues because the overwhelming majority of my colleagues do treat women with respect and are, are delighted to have women in class. There may have been one or two back then who, who had problems, but I have no recollection of that. I don't remember anybody ever saying anything in a faculty meeting. But if you're sensitive as a teacher, you're aware. You know, I, I, in class, I can see as a teacher when the other students are having problems with, say, a black or Latino student asking a question or a woman asking a question. And I'm sure the guys themselves are quite unaware of it, but I can see fellows rolling their eyes. You know, right up till today, many black students sit in the front row so they don't have to see it because they're aware, of course, that it's a challenge. But as a teacher, you see it if you're sensitive at all. But it, it is it is still a problem. I see it as a problem in our student body. It's not as bad as it used to be. And I think most of the men are quite unaware of it, that they are not comfortable with black students asking questions, for example, or women asking questions. But the women are quite aware of it. You know, the last few years, I've been teaching a, a women's study in the community for the last uh, 15 years, something like that, at the seminary. And we've studied C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Jane Austen and Dorothy Sayers, and I've done biblical studies and etc. or just all sorts of things. But uh, when I came to retire, 
you know, the our development department asked me who I would recommend to to teach it. And it, to answer that question, I went and interviewed half a dozen women students who I respect greatly and asked, who would you recommend who you know is going to treat women with dignity? And, you know, I, I got two or three of my colleagues proposed. Now, well, I think all of them treat women decently, try to, but there are two or three of them who do it really well, who don't just try to, who succeed, because it's a passionate commitment on their part. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think most guys are quite unaware of it. I think most pastors are unaware of it, that they don't treat women with equal dignity. Let me, let me give you a little bit of background here. When I was a student here, we had known, Vicky and I had known Aegon in Switzerland at Labrie, and we came here, and as I said, he was my closest friend. He used to have lunch with us every Sunday, and lots of other times too. And, you know, we got on very well together. We were involved in starting Grace and Peace together. He was in that prayer group, that Saturday night discussion group. And uh, we were going to church out at what was then the church in Ellisville, where a man named Roger Schaefer was the pastor. That's where we were going on Sundays, a uh, little RPC ES church out there, which later became what is now Chesterfield Press, many years later. But it wasn't a happy church. We were there because there was a couple, Ted and Gladys Smith, he was an elder there, who were just an absolutely lovely couple. And we got very close to with five kids. We had a lot of meals in their home and they had been profoundly influenced by the Schaefers and by the Ministry of Labrie. And because of that, particularly because of the book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, they were determined to have an open home. And... The reason the church wasn't happy, that the sermons were just dreadful, um, really miserable. I remember you know, every Sunday afternoon we'd come home and Vicky would go to bed. I mean, she just was miserable. And I remember on Easter Sunday, women sitting in the congregation just weeping. It turned out later that the, the guy had a brain tumor. But on Easter Sunday, he preached a sermon about a woman murdering her husband. I mean, it was just awful. And people were just sitting in the pews weeping. Not weeping with joy, weeping with sorrow, but weeping with misery in the setting. It was just awful. Um, but Ted and Gladys were this very bright light in that setting. Well, we started, we started these Monday evening prayer groups and this Saturday evening discussion group. And more and more people started coming to that. And Roger Schaefer, the pastor out there, the poor guy with the brain tumor who died that next year, nobody knew at that point he had a brain tumor. But he suggested to Ted, why don't you start a church in your home? You know, Ted and Gladys, their home was a tiny little bungalow out here in Ellisville. And they wanted more space. So they bought a big home with seven or eight bedrooms in University City, um, just north of Washu so they could be more hospitable. And uh, Roger said to them, you know, because at that point you could afford to buy homes in that setting, it would be very difficult now if they'd be so expensive. But uh, on these big homes on Washington Avenue there, you know, north of the university, just south of Del Mar, and uh, basically behind where 
where the Tivoli was. That's, they're very close to there. But uh, Roger Schaefer suggested, why don't you start a church there? You know, in your home, Ted. So we did. Uh, and that's how Grace and Peace began, meeting in Ted and Gladys's home. We called it Gladys's Restaurant because it was the time of Alice's Restaurant, that movie. And, uh, and it was like that. I mean, it was just this open home with just piles of people in there and they could make the living room big enough to get 70 or 80 people in, you know, for the services. And uh, then we eventually bought a building and moved out of there. But uh, what had been a library further east, down in the city, but on De Bolivar, that was how the church began. Anyway, Aegon and I were involved in the beginning of the church. We were teaching Sunday school to the teenagers together. We were going through the Heidelberg Catechism. And as I said, he was in our home every week. And uh, so we were very, very close. When we came back here, you know, 18 and a half years later, for me to teach at the seminary, you know, by that time, Aegon had become the senior pastor of Grace and Peace, had been for years. We didn't want to go because it was so far away from where we live out here. You know, it was just too far to go and to take our kids on Sunday. So we, we didn't go. And also people in the church, they wanted us to be another branch of Labrie here, but we did not want to be another branch of Labrie. We had done that and been there and been serving so many meals in our home every day for years and years. We wanted to, that we've done that to the point it's just about killed us. We're done. You know, we're really done. So we did not want to be constantly talking about the brie and and redoing it here that was the stage of our life which was over not because we didn't like the brie or the Schaefer's far from it but uh, we just had we'd done it enough you know it's it, the kind of work that kills you and you can't do it for more than 20 years really it's just so demanding on your time and your life and your emotional energy but uh, when we came back and you're going to have to decide how much of this you can publish, to start, but I'll just be honest here. When we came back, it was obvious that Aegon had moved theologically. You know, Grace and Peace had the Lord's Supper in a circle, and he had started publicly giving the Lord's Supper to gay couples who were coming to the church but so that everybody could see it. And he'd started teaching the elders that homosexual marriage was acceptable. Now, when we became aware of this as a presbytery, I was on a committee, I was put on a committee to try to handle the issues. And there were half a dozen of us on it. There was myself, Ron Lutyens, who just the recently retired pastor of Old Orchard where we worship and where our eldest son and his wife and kids go in Webster Groves. That was a plant of grace and peace, Old Orchard. And so Ron and I were on the committee. David Jones, who's now with the Lord, our professor of theology and ethics, who basically wrote every ethics paper that our denomination ever had without his name on it. You know, there all these wonderful, wonderful position papers on every possible ethical issue, both in the RPCES and then later in the PCA. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. 
George Robertson was on it and Richard Winter was on it. Those were the people on the committee. David Jones and Ron Lutyens did the theological section. Richard did the medical section. Uh, George Robertson did uh, a paper on besetting temptations and sins for those in ministry. And I wrote the paper on discipline, on church discipline, and broadened it to cover all issues rather than simply homosexuality, because I didn't think that was fair on homosexual practice. Because I knew there were many other areas where there needed to be church discipline in our denomination and not just somebody's teaching these views on homosexual practice or homosexual marriage. But the paper, my paper on discipline, was adopted unanimously by the Presbytery and became the Presbytery's position paper for the next 30 years, basically. They just produced a new one about five years ago. And we intervened to try to basically save the church from becoming a metropolitan community church. When the middle of all that, Aegon died. And, you know, in God's kind mercy, you know, the church... Uh, was saved from becoming a metropolitan community church. One man, who had been a practicing homosexual before his conversion, who was converted through Aegon, he was one of the leaders of the church. He was the one who couldn't cope with this change back again, because Aegon had moved to the position of saying that was an acceptable lifestyle. And uh, in the context of committed relationships, and he couldn't cope with it, and he left. But basically, nobody else left. It was an extraordinary thing. And a lot of us were involved in teaching and trying to help the church get through the aftermath.